This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. This edition of Dreamland is audio only. It's audio only, but it's still very fascinating. You won't have heard this approach to Nazi occultism ever before. It's a very unusual show. Today on Dreamland, we have a new guest, Stephen Flowers. Dr. Flowers is an expert in some rather surprising areas. Or why would he be on Dreamland, right? Uh, the occult in national socialism is what we're going to be talking about today. The symbolic, scientific, and magical influences of the Sh Third Reich. We're also going to be talking a bit about his another book of his, The Occult Roots of Bolshevism. His site, his website is seekthemysteries.com. And you know, in this show, we're finally going to learn something real about this stuff because there's an awful lot of bunk out there, I have to tell you. And I've interviewed from time to time, not often, but from time to time, some authors who were very imaginative, let me put it this way. Now, we, of course, one of the great uh, money pits or money generators of the t late 20th century and the second half of the 20th century was the Nazis and what uh, Nazi, uh, what it meant that, that the Nazis had gained so much power. Now, we, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. Was it, it, can it be dismissed as some sort of occult thing or not? Uh, Stephen has a doctorate in Germanic languages and medieval studies from the University of Texas at Austin my old alma mater, so he must be brilliant, um, or possibly, uh, like me, he may have, well, never mind. It's a wonderful party school as well as, well as being a wonderful school. Let me put it that way, and I love it. He studied the history of occultism and runology at the University of Göttingen in Germany. He's the author of more than 50 books, including Revival of the Runes. Uh, he lives in Texas near Smithville, Sort of an old, not far from Bastrop, I don't think. Or, and um, uh, now, let's just touch on to begin the revival of the runes. It's a very intriguing title. I have to admit that I have not, uh, I have not read it. But I'm curious: the modern rediscovery and reinvention of the Germanic runes. I know from the book I did just read, The Occult and National Socialism, that you know an awful lot about the runes. You tell us a little bit about their history to begin with, perhaps, and then we'll get into their modern application. Certainly. Uh, the, the, the runes, uh, specifically the Germanic word rune, means secret or mystery, uh, and it's applied by them in ancient times to the symbols that were used for writing the Germanic languages when they first were ever written by themselves. And uh, the alphabetic system that they developed is a strange one in the sense that most people who uh, inherited the alphabet from the Greeks, from the Romans, etc., just adapted it to their language, and and that was it. But the Germanic peoples actually completely reconfigured the system, uh, changing the look of each 
character, uh, putting them in a unique order and applying to each of the letters, if you will, each of the runes, a name, a symbolic name. And this is something that's quite unusual in the history of writing systems. We're familiar with it in the Hebrew alphabet that each name of the letter has a name which has a meaning beyond just an indication of the sound. So this kind of practice among people indicates that there was a deep symbolic poetic meaning uh, for this system. And that is what uh, was the reference point for any time they were mentioned in the oldest literature we have relating to them, Old Norse poetry and things of that nature. The uh, uh, earliest runic inscription goes back to the first century uh, and uh, in the history of alphabets it's generally considered that the first time you see it it uh, the system probably goes back a hundred years or so before that as far as when it actually originated so it originated in the first century bc probably somewhere in there and uh continued in a uh, a traditional manner uh, through uh, a, a complete millennium and continued then to be reformed and and uh, updated, if you will, by people within the runic tradition for uh, another 500 years. And then they were rediscovered, as it were, by uh, especially Scandinavians who started to investigate these uh, runic inscriptions. There are over thousand runic uh, rune stones and things of that nature in Sweden, Denmark, and uh, Norway, for example. So uh, they're very uh, numerous. And so at the time of humanism started, there was a natural interest in that sort of thing. And they started to investigate them in a modern scientific way. Uh, and uh, it took a long time for them to be uh, fully decoded in a modern scholarly sense to really understand the system. Uh, and uh, so that's the scholarly aspect of it. The uh, mythology connected to it, the indigenous mythology of the uh, runes, has it that uh, the god Ozin discovered the runes uh, during an sort of shamanic uh, ritual of self-sacrifice where it is said that he gave himself to himself. He sacrificed himself to himself on the tree and uh, and took up the runes and meaning that he absorbed them from beyond as it were and then began to utter them and to the to the world and to be other gods and so forth, and so it's uh, has a mythology of its own within the uh, the system of uh, the ancient Germanic peoples. So that's the the basic idea behind uh, runes in ancient times. 
uh, Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take a little break for you right now. We'll be back in a, just a few minutes. We're going to find out what the runes meant to the Nazis. We're talking to Stephen Flowers, his book, The Occult in National Socialism, his website, seedthemystery.com. As I got that title, is it Seed the Mystery? Or seek the Mysteries. So it's seek plural. the Mysteries. Okay, seekthemysteries.com. I'm sorry. Yes. All right. Uh, just a moment ago, we were, I was going to ask you, the, ruin, the runes became part of the Nazi, n- not officially, as you say in the book, but part of the sort of symbolic underpinnings, if you will, of Nazism. And uh, were they, were they believed in the sense that there are people who believe that runes are a fortune-telling device, et cetera, and so forth, that they have occult, not just occult symbolic significance, but power? Uh, is that how they were used or not? Well, uh, there was a, which I, I go into in some detail in the book, a, uh, a bureau, a, a, a governmental uh, apparatus that was called the Erbe, which means Ancestral Heritage uh, Office. And uh, that was a uh, scientific a sort of investigative uh, branch, oftentimes in the sort of occult Nazi books that are so common. It's called the Occult Bureau or something like that, when it was really a uh, investigative uh, bureaucracy uh, where they organized professors and all sorts of things like that. And so on the one hand, they were looking for as much as they could find out on the actual scientific scholarly aspects of these things. But it was a, a brainchild or a baby a, a pro- project of Heinrich Himmler, who uh, was interested primarily in uh, using this material. Uh, he was interested, okay, if it, uh, he, he would, we have all of his correspondence, for example, and he will ask a scientific runologist, what does this rune mean? And they'll get the answer back, well, we don't know, it could be this or it could be that. And then he will respond to that saying, oh, that's very interesting, but we are going to make it mean this. So he was interested, but it was primarily when push came to shove, it was something that was going to be used for propagandistic uh, reasons. And uh, this is the key to the whole uh, thing, as far as I have been able to determine, that uh, a lot of people have pet theories about occult ideas and so forth and so on. But the first and foremost uh, occult uh, aspect of the use of symbols, runes, a swastika, and all that sort of thing for the Nazis is something that we uh, only later really came to understand as concepts of branding, branding something, making it something that communicates to the mind of your uh, audience, your customer, your whatever you want to call them, the people you're trying to influence to uh, to 
come to understand how to manipulate these symbols in order to manipulate the minds of the masses. This was Hitler's primary interest. And uh, so things like the runes are branding mechanisms to give uh, the party a look, a sort of snazzy look that exuded this idea of competence, power, uh, and uh, and this sort of thing. Uh, in the competition of the day, between and among all of the different political parties, most of them uh, Marxist, left-wing kind of parties, they, they uh, uh, were just, uh, had not mastered uh, this, idea of branding the way that uh, Hitler did, as far as uh, everybody should have a uniform, we should look ready to take charge and ready to bring order to chaos. And uh, these symbols are all exuding that idea. And they speak to the unconscious mind of the masses and the runes are a Germanic branding mechanism. This is our writing. This is our way uh, of, of, uh, of making letters and so forth, but it wasn't uh, anything uh, that was too esoteric in the sense that a lot of magicians of today and so forth might say, but rather it gives this atmosphere and uh, uh, kind of style. That's one thing. Why the Nazis have fascinated subsequent generations so thoroughly is that because that they, magic that, that they, they exuded still works. If you watch Triumph of the Will or you see this, uh, these things that they were doing, you can say that is compelling to the, to the mind as you see it now. And uh, the symbols, uh, Hitler designed the swastika. It was an old symbol, obviously used forever. But he, the way he did it, the way he tilted it, the whole thing, he was, of course, uh, before he became dictator of Germany, he put on his tax forms artist. He was considered himself an artist first. <laughs> and uh, so until uh, he kind of got into politics. But... Uh, so, but he was a, a designer of images and things of that nature, and so this swastika logo uh, was was a, a compelling branding mechanism. We're going to take another little break for our free Dreamlanders. Uh, free Dreamlanders, enjoy these commercials and do what they say. If you do what they say, inevitably one of them is going to suggest you subscribe to the site, and you won't be listening to this anymore. We'll be right back. We're talking to Stephen Flowers, uh, The Occult in National Socialism. We're also going to be talking a little bit more later about the occult roots of Bolshevism. And we're going to, which is his, a, a new book he's working on, and we, we might well have another Dreamland about that at a later time in more detail. Uh, his website is seedthemysteries.seekthemysteries.com. That's seekthemysteries.com. And I would like to ask you this. You know, the swastika is a remarkable symbol. And there's been a lot written about its, its power. Uh, in the church where Hitler worshipped as a child, there are swastikas carved into the uh, 
into the woodwork of the choir, but they're not the, the thing that the, the things that made it so powerful were, as you say, the twisting of it to one side, the and the colors, the black, the white, and the red, are devastating to the human mind. They're really powerful. I remember when I was a boy growing up in San Antonio, and we used to play war. We had little tanks and things, you know, the usual things boys have, little soldiers. No one was interested in having the Sherman tank. You wanted the the tiger, and you wanted Mm -hmm. the Germans and the swastikas and all of that stuff. We didn't know anything about Nazism one way or another, but... uh, it's the power of these symbols. And I want to ask you if you have any insight into why it was, besides just being an artist, because he was, after all, quite an indifferent artist, Hitler. Mm -hmm. What gave him, how did he come up with all of this shockingly powerful and, frankly, corrosive symbolism? Well, part of it was that uh, enthusiasm for archaic ancient symbols, and then these symbols were around and part of the popular culture. That's the thing we don't realize. He didn't just say, okay, we're going to voice these symbols out on people. No, they were already trending, as we say today, right? They were already uh, something that people were trending towards, and so he just uh, put them on steroids. And a lot of it is does design, uh, as we know. Well, uh, just like the SS, he didn't design a just the SS runes where they have the S and the S uh, runes put together uh, for the, the the SS organization. But you see the art. It's kind of an Art Deco kind of look to the actual figures. There's style there. They're masters of style. They had a book, uh, it was a huge, thick book, that uh, dictated all of the uniforms, all of the symbols that they wore and so forth. It was like a uh, a uniform uh, directory of how we have to look, right? And so that was, and it had a purpose. It had a message, uh, beyond just say it looks good, but it has a, a, a an underlying message, and the swastika had that, and just the the tilting of it had the redness. So he, I, I, in the research of this book, one of the things I did is I read through Mein Kampf with an eye towards where is this man telling us anything of a magical occult kind of thing, and he does it repeatedly. He, uh, but his purpose in writing the book, nobody read that book, uh, really, uh, but uh, it was, of course, a bestseller. Everybody had to have one. Yes, but, I read but, it. I have he, to say Yeah, but as you see, what he did is he was writing for a small group of political figures, people that were he with, him, with whom he might have considered himself to be in intellectual uh, competition. So what he wanted to get across to them is, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I know exactly how to do everything. I am the boss. I am the Fuhrer. And you will uh, understand that I am the man with the ideas that will give us power. And so he just spilled the beans repeatedly as to how he was working. For example, he will say, 
We have our meetings at night because in the night, the minds of the masses are more susceptible to suggestion. He comes out and says this. He says, for example, our banner is red because I noticed in the Bolsheviks' meetings and so forth, these red banners are compelling. They are engender enthusiasm and an incredible sense of power, this red banner. So our banner must also be primarily red for that reason. Of course, the three colors are just the Germanic patriotic colors going back to ancient times. That's so the the three colors are the Germanic uh, political colors going back forever. But uh, so in Mein Kampf, he repeatedly gives this kind of information, sometimes just in passing and so forth, but he wants the reader, uh, his competitors or would-be competitors to know, I know what I'm doing and I have a special knowledge, you know, and a special way to apply this knowledge to get us what we want. And so uh, that's for that. What is the book is full of it. Yeah. Well, you know, you have such a fascinating, uh, you've written a lot of books and uh, I'm going to sort of jump around a little bit among your, your, your body of work. uh, Because it's, That's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to get more deeply into your work because, folks, this book, The Occult in National Socialism, is the first book on this subject that I've read that actually is truthful uh, and not designed to to, uh, titillate people and excite them with fantasies. And to give you an idea of what I mean, Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the uh, Sphere of Destiny and the Ravenscroft book and the realities behind that. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of reading the Sphere of Destinies and what you discovered when you researched it? Right. Well, that was really uh, the uh, one of the beginnings. I, a friend of mine who was my first sort of a occult, magical, sort of living mentor guy I knew that was actually into this sort of thing, a little older guy than me. And uh, he said, I, I saw a book you know, at the B. Dalton or wherever it was that you might be interested in. So I'd, we drove over there and I, I got it. I had written, uh, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd read uh, uh, some of uh, the uh, Morning of the Magicians, which contains this kind of material, and then this. And so I uh Read this Spear of Destiny, and uh, it, it it set me on a path of investigation. But what I discovered as I investigated reality at the university in the German department, uh, he couldn't quite hoodwink me as much as he could others. I would say, well, I want to this Guido von Liszt 
man. He paints him as some kind of, you know, Aleister Crowley. Forget it. This guy was a mad, uh, pervert, strange guy. And it's like I researched him, and no, none of that was true. He was an establishment figure, the darling of the conservative kind of Viennese society, uh, and was not a uh, an outcast or an outsider at all. And uh, so I started to investigate Guido von List and have uh, translated his major book way back in the eight, uh, 80s and uh, discovered many things about him uh, and uh, brought him to the English-speaking world. But uh, The Spear of Destiny, uh, when you read it, it's it. actually, as I report in the book, it was uh, the matter of a lawsuit later on. And uh, in, in open court, uh, the author... Uh, admitted or, or stated that the work is fiction. It's it was a work of fiction. So the, it d- didn't even exist. The spear, the, the of spear of destiny exists. Yes, it does. Or, or it does. There is a spear. There is a spear. Uh, it's in the. Uh, you can see it in the uh, Hofburg in the Viennese uh, uh, crown jewels. It's right there, and. Uh, it is a uh, as described in the book, and I, in my uh, in the book, uh, this uh, one we're talking about, I, I get into somewhat about that sphere. You know, this uh, Odin that we mentioned earlier, uh, our uh, god. Uh, after Wednesday, you know, his name we still use the Germanic names of the gods in our uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all named after Germanic gods. Uh, You know, but uh, Odin, this Wodan, carried a spear. That was his symbolic weapon. And uh, so that was the symbol or sort of a royal scepter of the uh, god. And Germanic kings in ancient times and medieval times also carried a spear in this way. Now, in the Middle Ages, as you're probably well aware, uh, when Christianity comes uh, onto the scene, uh, old symbols, uh, kind of like they does in Santeria and Voodoo and all that, uh, the old symbols are then reinterpreted in a Christian sense so that something will say, okay, we have this very important, the king is carrying a spear, it's a very important spear. Where does in our uh, Christian uh, scripture, etc., does a spear play a large role? Hmm, well, of course, it's the spear of Longinus, right, that pierced the side of Christ. And so... That's where the sort of Christian uh, mythology, and that's the whole Ravenscroft uh, uh, line of thinking, is that this the man who holds this spear holds the destiny of the world in his hands right. because that Longinus, when he pierced the side of Christ, fulfilling prophecy it, and so forth. That can't be true, I mean, because that type of magic doesn't actually exist. Right. Well, that's the angle, though. That's why it's the spear of destiny. It was just called in German, in the Austria, it's called just the holy lance, and it was considered to be that have that symbolic quality. Of but course, we know the other, the other side of the coin is that if people believe it has a power, they yes. confer that power on it, and for, as far as they're concerned, it does yes. have that power. Right. But, it, you know, the main power it has is it's a scepter of royal authority. It was uh, actually uh, 
a spear from around seven, eight hundred. It was made at that time, and uh, it was carried by various kings. And Charlemagne eventually obtains it, and then, uh, and that, of course, when it becomes very important in history at that point, as his scepter or his. He carried it, just the head of it, you know, uh, with him all the time. But uh, so that that's the spear of destiny. But the story that Ravenscroft tells is just completely, he went so far as to uh, make up names, addresses of places. He'll say so-and-so went to this guy's bookshop at this address in Vienna. These things didn't exist. I mean, the address wow. doesn't exist. And so, but see, he was trying to... to to make people believe all this is real and all this is exactly I as guess in order to make money would be his reason? Yes, yes. Well, yeah. He, he made a lot like, of money, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, he was supposedly, uh, and then he uh, said, I learned all of this from this uh, anthroposophist, uh, uh, and uh, he told me all this great stuff, and then it was uh, revealed, or it turns out that he never met this guy or did, and didn't know him at all. <laughs> so you know, My it's all—it's all just. Uh, and then uh, Nicholas Goodrich Clark, uh, he researched it very well in his uh, "The Occult Roots of Nazism," which is a good book. Unfortunately, or not unfortunately, it's a good book. I mean, but it, uh, that book. Uh, concentrates too much on the idea of the uh, sort of neo-Germanic uh, thinkers such as Guido von Liszt and so forth as being the main uh, uh, engine of occult thinking among the Nazis. And as my, I try to show in my book, it's much more complex than that. Yes. Uh, and Hitler did not like... <laughs> The, that aspect. Uh, Himmler loved it, but if Himmler hadn't been the way he was, there would be half the interest in this sort of occult kind of stuff among the right. Nazis. He was the real enthusiast for that. Hitler said, and in my time, said, these people talk about the old uh, gods, and that ruins it all for me. It's just ridiculous, you know, because he wanted to, to be modern, you know. Yeah, he, and, uh, uh, he once at one point complained about Himmler saying, we have no past. <laughs> and it, 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 he scorned that. I, w I wrote mm -hmm. a, a novel called In Hitler's House in which I exhaustively researched a lot of this uh -huh. material. And I, I came to the same conclusion that you're coming to, that Hitler, this was not something that was Hitler's interest, but he did know how to use these symbols to great effect. Right. Free Dreamlanders, you have come to the end of your time with us today, I'm sorry to say. We've been talking about the occult and national socialism. Uh, when we come back, we're going to explore alternative science that was so popular among the Nazis and uh, alternative creation theories, uh, Antarctica and uh, Nazi Flying saucers and Schwaben, a new Schwabenland, it supposedly in Antarctica. We're going to find out about all of those things and Admiral Byrd's mysterious beliefs about Antarctica. It'll be fascinating. Free Dreamlanders, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Stephen's website is seekthemysteries.com and do go to it and you'll find there a remarkable list of books. Subscribers, we're going to keep right on keeping on.
Uh, Stephen, uh, yes, there are, are, I was fascinated by, you know, these stories of New Schwabenland and Nazi UFOs and the idea that Admiral Byrd was down there trying to find a, a hidden Nazi country under the ice. Can you talk a little bit about what was actually going on? They did try to uh, create New Schwabenland at, at one point, didn't they? Well, yeah, they just try to uh, alternative, uh, uh, you know, places to go. And it was after disaster in case of disaster struck, which it did. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's hard to know what uh, is a fact and fiction, you know, in all of that. Uh, but uh, what is true uh, about their technology, you know, just the fact that uh, the amount of technology the Germans were uh, theoretically uh, working on uh, before the war, you know, I mean, it, it just uh, the, the mass of, of, of intellectual power that was there, of course, uh, Probably a good portion of it was completely was immediately rejected because of the they, the scientists were Jewish, so that uh, such as Einstein or whoever, so uh, those were were out. But uh, still, there was a huge amount of uh, knowledge there, technical knowledge, theoretical and practical. And so, uh, when then pressure is applied in war. And you have to come up with uh, new ideas and new technologies, et cetera. Of course, this put all of that effort on overdrive, although Hitler himself was just too stubborn in his beliefs about war. He thought he was, uh, you know, an expert in the subject when he didn't know much about it other than the trenches, you know. And uh, right. so, uh, but he, so, uh, for example, uh, the ME-262, the uh, the uh, jet uh, fighter, he just kept saying, poo-poo, we don't need that. Uh, no, 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 you know, that's ridiculous. And they could have had that in the air years before it was, by the time they put it up, it, you know, the war was already lost. So, uh, but... Uh, that that's uh, it's amazing these weapon systems. If you look at them, the things that Nazis had, you see that it's the roots of almost all of the wonder weapons that we attacked Iraq with. The people go, my God, these smart bombs! They the Nazis had smart bombs. I mean, they didn't have enough of them, and they weren't good enough to make a difference. But video guided bombs, they had some that had wire, thin wire that guided, guided missiles with a joystick sort of thing in the cockpit. Uh, of course, then we have the, the B-1 rocket, which is the prototype of the cruise missile. And yeah, I was uh, absolutely you know, fascinated so by the relationship between the design of the v V2 rocket and that, uh, uh, movie about going to the moon of Fritz Lang yeah. from 1929. Sure. Tell us a little bit about that. It's absolutely fascinating. Right. The, uh, 
uh, Prince Lung, he he's uh, well, he got the the uh, there was a rocket scientist sort of club. Uh, the Treaty of Versailles sort of disallowed actual experimentation for the Germans uh, in these military things, but they had people thinking about it and doing models and prototypes and things of that nature. And so there were a lot of enthusiasts, including uh, Werner von Braun, of course, but others in the circle. And so Long uh, got these guys to act as uh, uh, technical advisors for the movie, and there you have every, a lot of things. For example, the countdown, 10, 9, eight, that's from that movie, that's from their practices, and it becomes part of the space program uh, and all of that. Uh, the idea that the rockets will or that it will go into uh, orbit and beyond the uh, bounds of the Earth would be uh, stage rockets where you'd have like three stages that would boost it further and further that way. That was uh, from this uh, film because that was what the Germans were thinking. Now, you've mentioned this other book I have out there. It's it's available, The Occult Roots of Bolshevism. And uh, actually, a lot of the German ideas about the space program uh, actually came from the Russians. There was a uh, man, a scientist named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, and he dreamed uh, up uh, a space program to go to Mars. They wanted to go to Mars. And uh, uh, he had all of this, all these staged rockets, all that kind of thing. Uh, and it was a, a whole theoretical basis for a space program. This was before the Bolshevik Revolution, even. And uh, the the Germans, read, uh, we know Werner von Braun had a copy, a translated, annotated copy of this man's work. And uh, I got a lot of ideas from, from them. But uh, so uh, there was a whole space program there, and, and the Germans uh, used it and, and made practical use of it, obviously, in uh, wartime theater. And uh, like I said, the, you know, these are the prototypes of the cruise missile, the intercontinental ballistic missile, all of that sort of thing is all in theory and in practice already uh, there. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So it, it's fascinating that all of that was those ideas were were coming from so many different directions at the same time, and now we're in a situation where they've all kind of matured, and our world is far, far more dangerous than it was before. We have not broken through to the stars. Instead, we're still trapped here, staring down, staring at each other through all kinds of exotic sights and ready to fire world-ending missiles at each mm -hmm. other at a moment's notice. That's where this all went. Yeah. And, you know, you have to wonder about that. Right. Well, it was born, uh, uh, you know, if there hadn't been the war, there wouldn't have been uh, the, the program, right? I mean, in space race and the conflict between the Russians and uh, right. us as far as the space race. And, you know, the Russians didn't... Uh, didn't even just, just they wanted to go to Mars, 
And it was like 63 or four or something like that when they officially sort of changed, got into the moon race because they were thinking going to Mars. Now, that's symbolic occult kind of thing also that in 1905 won a Russian early Bolshevik uh, uh, wrote a novel called Red Star, and it was about uh, the uh, Bogdanov was his name, and he was like second fiddle to Lenin before he kind of said, I don't want to be involved in it too much anymore. But uh, he was a great hero of them. And uh, and he wrote this book, Red Star, which is kind of a, uh, uh, a utopian science fiction novel where a Russian revolutionary is, this is 1905, uh, is transported to Mars by the Martians. And there he sees a perfect communist society that exists on Mars. And so he observes it and tries to bring it back to the earth, you know, and make it happen here. But that the popularity of that novel is the reason why the red star is a symbol of the red army and all that sort of thing. It was just a pop culture phenomenon. And, uh, but the, the the Germans certainly learned these things and took them to heart and you know, made them happen. See, the the Russians they they didn't have the uh, the brain power, as it were, the traditions of scientific uh, background that the Germans had. So they were had a difficulty. And when they uh, said, "Okay, we want a space program," the Germans know every uh, practic made it in a practical way uh, uh, to, to work. So they took the Germans, brought them to Russia and said, okay, teach our Russians what you know, and then they sent them back to Germany. As we, as we know, and then they did the best they could, which wasn't good enough. Uh, but as we know, we just brought the, the Germans here, how many of them there was, it was a huge, you know, 50 guys, and just said, you do it, you know, you, you make it happen, <laughs> you know, just keep going. And, uh, and uh, we just made use of that, not, not previous knowledge base. And, and so we're, uh, uh, successful, but those are the factors that all those factors lead to the, the end of this moon race story, I guess. Yeah, it does. It does lead eventually. And we're still in the moon race because the, the Chinese are planning to, uh, claim the moon as Chinese territory. So we got problems yeah. there and we're trying to go back to the moon to prevent them from doing that, I guess. And our rocket seems to already be in significant trouble. Uh, in, yeah. <laughs> in any case, uh, yeah. let's, I want to, I want to shift up. I want to be talking about Admiral Byrd and Hollow Earth and the Antarctic and all that stuff in a few minutes. But I want mm -hmm. to get back first to the word Nazi and the comment. There's a wonderful comment that you quote in the book about the power of words. And uh, tell us a little bit about the word Nazi and uh, oh, yeah. where it comes from. And I mean, I know it's a contraction of national socialism, et cetera, but uh, German German word uh, the word national is pronounced nation 
Nation. So it's just Nazi. You know, it's just the way that it sounds. It doesn't look that way, but it's respelled to just be phonetic uh, sort of a representation. But the word uh, just means nationalist, uh, uh, which in German uh, means literally what the word means. That is, it is uh, uh, ethnic, right? The, the uh, the Latin word natio means I am born. It's innate, uh, natural. That's the word natural, nation, innate. All these are Latin words related to one another, uh, related to us. Natio. And uh, so that that's what it means. Like a uh, German word for it, as I have in there quite a bit, it says folkish, folkish. Uh, is what their German translation of the word nationalist. Uh, so uh, that's what it uh, means literally, and uh, more down to earth or basic in the German than we uh, have sort of abstracted the term national so that it doesn't always mean ethnic. It means uh, just a, a state, right? State oriented. But uh, the word was already in use uh, as Nazi. That that sort of uh, word or, or term was used w- long before the Nazis, and it was uh, uh, meant like a ruffian or a uh, you know a person of a, like a, a thug or a, a, a brutal kind it, it of. Person. It was a slang word. Yeah. yeah, but it was still short for nationalist. But uh, it was just understood that these guys were, and that's one of the things that the, you know, the, the Nazis, uh, per, uh, how they succeeded in uh, uh, their struggle with the uh, socialists, uh, both of them striving to take over Germany after the First World War, and uh, so it was a free for all as far as politics was concerned, and as we know, the. Uh, the Soviets or the uh, Bolsheviks uh, actually succeeded in for a while of having a, the the uh, uh, Soviet state of Bavaria, you know, for a few weeks, <laughs> and uh, so they were taking. You know, it wasn't just like the Red Scare or something like that. There were actual uh, revolutions going on, shifts in government or attempts at it. Uh, in Germany and parts of Germany, and so the nationalists uh, fought to uh, to thwart this, uh, and they uh, used in great uh, efficiency uh, brute force. You know that's uh, you know say no, don't argue with these people, just beat the hell out of them. You know. Yeah, I mean that's that. Uh, so that was their uh, tactic, and uh, you know it was everybody's tactic. But they, the 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 Nazis tended to be war veterans, you know. And, right. Well, uh, they had been through hell in yeah. the Second World War, and of course <laughs> they didn't know at the end what we know now what th- that type of disaster does to people specifically they ended up with ptsd uh, which mm-hmm. made them arbitrarily violent and right. irrational at times and they were hitler was 
He was mm-hmm. well, he had right. PTSD, a severe yeah, case of it. Yes. I mean, he'd seen I think that's his true. friends blown up in his face after all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, PTSD is hard to, to, to process when you go through it, and then you come back to a situation in your country where, uh, you know, nobody has any work, the money's no good, and, uh, you know, uh, you're having to pay reparations and all that kind of thing, and you can't get right. on your feet. And then, you know, it, it's just a setup. It's it's a, the greatest, greatest tragedy of history, I guess, because of the magnitude of it, is the whole sequence of events in the first part of the 20th century. The First World War was over and nothing. It was stupid. You know, right, I mean, it, it didn't have to, the, to happen. It and led to the infection directly. Of, excuse me. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. I it talked just over leads you. Di- it just leads directly. I mean, it's really one war, you know? It's not two wars. It's just, it's just uh, the, 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 the first one leads directly to the second one because it was not handled uh, properly. The, uh, Germany was not militarily defeated. They just uh, their society, their uh, their polit- political structure just crumbled, like the Russians did also, uh, right. and so forth. And so there was a revolution, and it was just chaos, you know. And I think we, I think back, uh, back, uh, you know, at the time of the greatest generation, our uh, father's generation, you know, the, they were, six, uh, I believe, uh, substantially smarter than we are. You know, in the sense of like the Marshall Plan. So that we, we, when we look at what we did, Germany, Japan, et cetera, we knew what we were doing as far as how to create a lasting peace and transform uh, nations. Who would have thought, you know, Japan and Germany would have been such, uh, uh, be so transformed, you know, by it's what so happened. So transformed into, into yes. great nations and and fortresses of, of human freedom. It, it, remarkable. That is one of the greatest achievements in history. Yeah, right. And, and that was because, uh, the, the, you see, the First World War, how stupidly and counterproductively the peace was handled versus what happened. But I don't think, in my observations, Nowadays, that we learned any of our uh, any of the lessons that are taught there, it seems like we're repeating things we get from World War One, not, not right. uh, the Marshall Plan and things of that nature. For example, Af- Afghanistan. You know, Afghanistan is the most illiterate nation in the whole world. There's more illiteracy in that country, and if we spent twenty years teaching people how to Read and write and be literate as a instead of anything else, we probably had a whole lot better outcome. Well, we did the you same, know? we made the same mistake in Vietnam. Uh, we sure. did not engage with the people properly, uh, mm-hmm. and and we didn't engage with the people in, in Afghanistan. We seem to be more than willing to spend billions upon billions of dollars to suppress them, but nothing mm-hmm. to help them. And so, you know, they live in fear of us. And then when we leave, naturally, uh, it all, all of the false governments that we've created collapse. 
And mm-hmm. we're, we're surprised. I, I was, I thought to myself when, uh, President Trump made that deal with the Taliban, I thought, you know, if he's in power, when we leave, when that deal is, is done, when, the, mm-hmm. when we honor our promise as we will, being this country almost, almost always does if it can honor its promises, he's going to really be excoriated because we're going to, that country's going to collapse like a house of cards immediately. And, and yeah. as it happened, the next president, Biden, was the one who had to pull the plug. And indeed, the country collapsed even faster than I thought it would. I, th- I gave yeah. it two weeks, and it was, it was less than uh-huh. two weeks. Because <laughs> there was no, no there there. there was no yeah. country. It was all fake. No, no, it's a, it's a tribal, uh, you know. I mean, it's, exactly. Uh, it's, a, it's a tribal society. And the, mm-hmm. call them the Taliban, the students, is ridiculous. They're, they are the Pashtun uh, tribal mm-hmm. leaders. And they're, right. and they're, uh, and they're supporters. That's who they are. They're not students. Yeah, that's just <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Students of the course. Uh, yeah, but you see what I mean as far as the, the, the illiteracy problem. I mean, just as an right. example that you could really transform a, not, not teaching them English or, you know, teach them their languages, but how to read them. And write them and, right. and 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 become educated people. Uh, well, how to, how to understand the world right. as it really is? And you know, in our country, in the United States, we've had a tremendous decline in the quality of education over the past fifty years, and now we have a huge underclass of people who will believe anything. And they have absolutely no ability to dis- discriminate between fact and fiction. They can't do it. Yes. I mean, I, having had a close encounter of the third kind and being in that space, I live with this every day of my life, that people believe the most ridiculous things about it. It's an extremely unusual and extraordinary mystery. That's what it is. But they, there's a whole landscape of folklore around it that people believe implicitly without even thinking to question it. Uh, but let's, we're, we're yeah, diverting that's from our... Truth. We're di- <laughs> we're diverting well, a little bit from our purpose I mean, here. We divert from it, but but this kind of book is uh, uh, that's what I confront uh, with this book uh, is, is how quick people are to believe the most outlandish uh, tall tales, which gets and, right uh, back to the Nazis themselves, mm-hmm. who had a and Hitler was no exception in this regard. They had a real taste for. Alternative this and alternative that. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't see it. I may not have come across it in the book, but at one point, Hitler believed that the Earth was surrounded by a shell of ice, as I remember. Sure. That's Hans Herberger, the right. ice layer, the world ice, uh, the cosmic ice doctrine. Which yeah. is, cannot be true, and any fool can see it when you look up <laughs> the stars at night. Well, see, but there you go. There's this guy. This is like, oh, well, what forces? Uh, I see this all the time. There's a psychological. I say, what uh, people believe things because they run contrary to the thoughts of people they hate. The people are more willing to to hate. Uh, and believe a person who's saying, uh, well, these people are ones we hate, and they say this, so we're going to say the opposite. We're going to say something else. 
because what, what, what motivates you again? Uh, seeking truth or what, what your experience? No, it's because this guy thinks X. I am going to think Y with all the passion I can muster. And so it was like, that's a, a Jewish uh, physics, Einstein. So we yeah, have to have so therefore it can't physics. be true. Therefore, they missed the atomic bomb, and we didn't. <laughs> but you see, I mean, that's the, the thing is that people are, and that's what like with the Russians. They will, uh, the Bolsheviks will, uh, they succeed, and they, 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 they uh, say, well, we hate this, the, the, the nobility, the church, et cetera. Well, these are the things we hate. Now, the new guys, you serfs, you, uh, you know, peasants and, and the farmers and, and the soldiers and uh, so forth, you hate them too. And so we're going to fight for you and, uh, and hurt these other people. And so they do, but really, uh, as often as not, those other people uh, continued in their influential ways. Uh, uh, and the people who really get hurt most are the ones they say they're helping, but really the peasants and the soldiers and so forth are the ones that suffer the most, but they're willing to suffer it because they believe that the party is hurting the people we hate. You know? Right. And that's the same thing with the Nazis. We hate the Jews, whatever. And so... They're after them, so we'll, we're willing to, uh, you know, be abused by the government and, and made to go into uh, uh, mad wars because of our uh, uh, our hate, you know. And the hate was, in that case, in the Germans' case, was driven by the Treaty of Versailles, being treated unfairly, loss of honor, you know. It's like if we had the Vietnam War, but somehow somebody imposed, well, uh, you know, you're going to have to give up California and, uh, and, uh, and you're going to have to be paying whoever, some other country, billions and billions of dollars and your economy will be ruined because why? Well, you know, there's you a war there and you lost. Well, in theory, you lost. Uh, well, I don't, I don't, I didn't feel any loss. I didn't suffer through a, a defeat. You know, it just seems arbitrary. So when then, of course, the, so the, the 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 dagger story comes right in where they say we were stabbed in the back, right? You know by you know these nefarious socialists, which is Hitler in Mein Kampf identifies a small group of Jewish clerks, basically in the in the German mm-hmm. uh, uh, Imperial War Department, who he blames for mm-hmm. ending the war when they shouldn't have done, and. Now, that gets me to this whole business, and I, I want to get into this It's because it's terribly important, of uh, the way the, the the anti-Semitism of the Middle Ages was, was right. just a minute, was, uh, was religious primarily. Then the Enlightenment came along, and people like Frederick the Great tried to release the Jews from this long history of oppression. In fact, Frederick the Great, Hitler's great idol did that, but he didn't, Hitler didn't mention anything about that in Mein Kampf, I noticed. Um, the, yeah. But what then happens is the it becomes introduced as a racial issue. 
and mm-hmm. the and I've wondered if this ha- how much this has to do with theosophy and yeah. the theosophical race theory that that Madame Blavatsky uh, uh, promoted uh, the, of the new of the yeah. old races and the new races and mm-hmm. because there's an awful lot in Hitler's writings that seem to reflect those ideas in a very perverted way. And yeah, it, definitely. The theosophy is a popular, you know, pop culture of the you know uh, the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, but really the early twentieth century in Germany is when it starts to be that way. Uh, but uh, I, I think it plays a role. But already in the uh, early, the church fathers uh, are known to you know, referred to the uh, the Jews as a satanic race and this sort of thing, and uh, and and even the Roman, the pagan Romans. You read uh, Tacitus when he t- talks about uh, the Jews. You know, is uh, he, he thinks that a Nazi had written it, and it wasn't. He's a pagan Roman, you know. Now that's uh, it. Really, it really pissed off, you know, entire tyrannical people like the Romans or the whoever's that uh, the Jewish people were able to, uh, to to even though they were small and and apparently insignificant, were able to resist great power and to persevere uh, in the face of adversity and all of that sort of thing. And uh, already the pagan Romans were uh, identified this, and, and and it really annoyed them. <laughs> well, they had a tremendous amount of trouble, and uh, eventually, uh, once they had captured the Jews, essentially captured Israel and Palestine, mm-hmm. uh, they they changed the name of Jerusalem to Alia Capitolina, which means the the capital of the alien house, that is to say, Hadrian's family. And it mm-hmm. was, it was, that was its name for another three or four hundred years. And they, they absolutely eliminated the name. They shoot all of the Jews out of Palestine. And the Romans were very thorough. They mm-hmm. ended the Jewish world as it had been before the rebellion. And that is reflected in to this day, uh, in the story, of course, of the wandering Jew, uh, the yeah. Jew is a stateless person, a person whose uh, religion causes him to become an isolate, and yet he somehow uh, soldiers on until mm-hmm. this unbelievable, unbelievable incident occurs in Germany, and it's it if you know i'm not really a much of a believer in demons but you can get me going when you talk about the holocaust and the whole yeah. business um, and of 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 world war 2 and hitler's fantastic desire to steal the world from itself i mean he set out to actually steal russia from the russians that was what it, 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 it was a matter. It, what he did in Western Europe was to occupy Europe to basically so that there would be no, there would be no one behind him when he went into Russia. 
No one, no one who could attack him from behind. Then he went into Russia in order to annihilate the Russian peoples and the Jews that were in the West, in the East, and yeah. to take that land and give it to the Germans. Exactly. Well, that's unbelievable yeah. craziness. That's an old, uh, well, you know, like empires of old. Uh, but uh, what's so uh, the Nazis might or their their uh, beliefs uh, that were irrational and uh, completely counterproductive and ridiculous as far as a strategic. Like for example, when the when they entered Russia, there was a whole country there that was willing to say, "Give us weapons, we will fight on your side, and we will." fight on your side against the Russians. Right. We will. Those are they, the they Ukrainians. They went in there wanting to take it because they wanted the land. Right. But those were the Ukrainians right. who had been uh, been mistreated by the Russians forever. Yeah. You know, and using then, starvation. But, and so. but uh, the Germans said, you what, you Ukrainians, you're no better than the Russians. You're subhuman. We're not going to fight. You know, we're going to kill you. We don't do, recognize that, exactly. et cetera, et cetera. It's like, you know, Insane, you know. I mean, just just where ideology is. These people actually, you know, believe this ideology so much so that they were willing to to annihilate themselves uh, rather than do something uh, that that would be successful. You know, I mean, it's 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 crazy. But we see that still. I mean, people will do things that are counterproductive and wrong. Uh, because of the, some ideology. Uh, right, but they, they believe the ideology is almost always wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's the thing about it. And it, it's all, and yet we, we cling to our ideologies and beliefs because we know deep in our hearts that they're not true. And the only way to make uh, them true is to annihilate all opposition. We, that's that's a true, good point. Yeah, that's true one of, of our religions and our political systems and everything. The Russians, you know, I think that they knew they were lying. That's why the Bolsheviks. Uh, that's why I think they just evaporated because they said, you know, this uh, this shtick is not working anymore. You know, I mean, this Bolshevik. I mean, being tied to ideology is counterproductive. We just want to you know, be uh, gangsters like we really were in the beginning. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's basically where the Nazis or Bolsheviks, et cetera, they're basically gangsters. Wherein you say, well, uh, gangsters say, well, I'm going to get this turf or this territory or this, uh, you know, I'm going to run booze or return drugs or whatever. Uh, well, wait a minute. Why don't we just take over the whole country and everything and everyone in it? That's the biggest uh, heist of all, you know? And so, yeah, let's do that. But I think the right. Bolshevik, you know, were, realized this is a... This is, uh, you know, I mean, we we know what we're doing. I think one of the things I fear when I see in people ideologically is they don't know they're lying. They're lying to themselves first, and then the lies they tell to others are actually just reflections of self-delusion. So they actually believe what they're doing is not a, a racket. It's the truth. 
you know? That's a dangerous kind of thinking. And the Nazis were definitely like that. Like you said, a lot of this anti-Semitism and so forth goes deep. It goes back to the Middle Ages, right? The Nazis would not have succeeded in their anti-Semitic rhetoric if there had been all of the centuries of anti-Semitism that it was building on. If they said, well, the Jewish people... but, you know, they seem to be pretty smart people. I, uh, I've had nothing but good, or I have no reason to hate them. But wait a minute, they, you know, and then they get into their killers of Christ, this whole thing. You know, and uh, so that sort of uh, thinking that goes back to the Middle Ages and, uh, and uh, Enlightenment and all the other things that happened didn't, thoroughly eliminated from people's consciousness. No, it hasn't. In fact, the light is dimming rapidly of the Enlightenment. And, and it's on Facebook or whatever, I'll say something, you know, and just the people that come out of the woodwork uh, with uh, this kind of Nazi, you know, like uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric and so forth and so on, you know, uh, it sounds like it comes right out of the, you know, the, the, the elders of Zion or something. And it's like, I have a thing in the book, I put it in there, there's a little section there called The Power of Believing in Weird Ideas. That's so important. I'm fascinated with that because I live with that. That's my life. I mean, I live those (laughs) ideas. Uh You know, and I do agree that there is something there that, um, that, you know, that there's a, there's a kind of blurry line between strange experiences and weird ideas. We try to explain our strange experiences with weird ideas. But uh-huh. why? Why not try to explain them in a more straightforward way? Which has, right. of course, been my whole life. I mean, it's been what I do. Uh-huh. Because I have had extremely right. strange experiences and have them all the time. But I right. don't necessarily characterize them because I don't think they can be characterized, not yet. We're being bad boys, you and I, because okay. we're not here to talk about this stuff, although it's fun okay. and it's fascinating. <laughs> what we are here to talk about, though, are the Nazis, and we just touched on New Schwabenland, and I wanted to talk about Nazi flying saucers. Which is uh-huh. a, now, there are some images that I've seen of round craft, and the Nazis, after all, the Germans were very involved in all kinds of building all kinds of esoteric war, war machines. Could there have been a craft like that worked like that? Is there any evidence of that at all? I mean, not necessarily had any gravity and all of that stuff. But that was round and could have been mistaken, could have been called yeah. in, in modern times well, I, a UFO. I, I think there were uh, either prototypes or the plans for such things. Now, this fits into the UFO uh, world of America in the late forties uh, and so forth. And I, I knew a, a man who was pretty well. Uh, uh, in the military and intelligence and that sort of thing, and I ran this idea by him. He said, well, I think you're on to something there. And that was, uh, you know, that there were uh, 
train loads of boxcar after boxcar of patents, documents, prototypes, all kinds of things that are shipped out of Germany and came to America and uh, act just immediately after the war. And, uh, and our scientists and engineers and so forth, of course, looking it over. Now, it's my supposition that that's why you say cruise missile, V-1 rocket, well, you know, all this kind of thing, that these were prototypes of something that was going to go beyond that. So things like the Foo Fighters, what were those, uh, these uh, other kinds of craft that were probably used experimentally and such. Now, if you look at where the UFOs start to show up, first is like in Washington State, uh, in New Mexico, et cetera. Now, these are also just so happen to be uh, Boeing and the, you know uh, the proving grounds in New Mexico, et cetera. Not that they, you know, say, well, there could be uh, for visitors from beyond looking at these things. Or another alternative is that uh, these are prototypes, uh, experimentally work being worked on by American scientists. Now the UFO uh, story is uh, floated or, or put out there just as not officially, of course, but rather hey, it could be people from another world, that that was an idea to try to throw the Russians off to say if they knew we were accessing German technology, captured German technology, then they would immediately, of course, <laughs> spy on it and start to go after it. But if they thought, well, this is because they had beliefs, you know, in, in that kind of thing also. So if you just said, try, it's just an attempt to throw the Russians off the scent of what was actually going on. So maybe that was the main thing. That was the main motive for people's, uh, uh, you know, uh, use of that as a, as a piece of a story, cover story. Well, we'll have to agree to disagree about some of that because uh -huh. I'm, I have too much knowledge of of this stuff to 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 say that it's all a cover story. It's not. There's something else going on, but that's uh -huh. not what this show is yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, right. We're we're trying to talk here about uh -huh. the Nazis and Nazi es Nazi esotericism, and I would like to uh, we touched on but did not go very deeply into. Theos theosophy and the okay. theosophical race theory and how that became uh, Nazi race theory or, or it was mm -hmm. perverted into Nazi race theory. I don't think, I think the yeah, original right. theosophical ideas were quite harmless, but what turned out was not. Could you it, tell us a little bit about that? Well, the, the, the world of that, the theosophical uh, uh, world, was uh, extremely influential in the early 20th century German and Austrian right. esoteric circles. People like Guido von Liste totally really converted to theosophy and many others also. Uh, and uh, so they adapted it and adopted it and that sort of thing. And, uh, but, I think the Nazi racism, as it is, uh, is much more uh, visceral and uh, 
not all that sophisticated, you know, to, uh, I, I don't think that the motives for what they were doing were anything uh, attached to theosophy or the, those kinds of things. Uh, I think it was just much more, uh, you know, brutal than that. But some thinkers and intellectuals and, you know, that kind of people who were part of the roots of the general sort of uh, cultural, uh, subcultural milieu of the whole thing were definitely influenced by by theosophy. But uh, theosophy is connected to the ovens in Auschwitz. You know, that's uh, that's uh, a stretch. It is a stretch. What? Yeah. What would motivate people to, you know, I read, I, I read, I've read a fair amount about this period because of the novel I wrote, uh, the historical novel. And one of the things that shocked me were two. One is how many members of the Waffen SS were not even Germans. And mm-hmm. two, how many members of the SS in general were highly educated people, doctors and so forth. What was yeah, going on there? there? What, what, how was it that well, these pe- that people like this could end up in such a an obviously morally bankrupt, uh, corrupt madhouse of an organization? Well, it didn't seem that way at the time to me. I mean, uh, so when you say doctors and scholars and all that kind of thing, there were different parts of the SS. There were guys who were in the SS who'd never touched a weapon other than their ceremonial dagger, you know, uh, but rather it was, uh, like I said, this on and there, it was a scholarly society, but they were members of the SS, but they were not uh, fight, fighting men or anything like that at all. Uh, it was sort of a knighthood, as it were, of uh, uh, scholars. And if you have a, if you have a, an org, a people, Let's just say you're interested in subject X, Y, or Z. Let's take the example I have that I know most about. That's like runology. You take uh, a person like uh, one of the great runologists of Germany at the time was a guy by the name of Wolfgang Krause. And uh, he was a runologist and uh, was not particularly interested in politics as far as that goes. Uh, But... uh, the Nazis come along and say, you know, we're going to really research these runes and things like that. Let's see, you could be, you have your own institute and your own uh, sort of organization in the scholarly world and have funding and this kind of thing. All this kind of sounds familiar to our society today. Yeah, you'll be funded. You'll be this. Give it. Okay, you know, and they go along with it because they want to research their area. That could be science. It could be scholars. It could be archaeology. It could be anything. But the Nazis are getting it as you say. They're corrupting it because they are moving everything. Just like the story I told there with uh, Himmler. Say, what does this rune mean? They say X, and he goes, Well, we're going to make it mean Y because it's, you know what we want to do. So they do it. But the, the scholar that he was corresponding with is like, well, he's asking me, he's, uh, he's involved in this sort of thing. The government is interested in my work and scholars, scientists, scholars, uh, intellectuals will 
swallow it all hook, line, and sinker if somebody is, uh, you know, basically flattering them, you know? And I think that was all, that's what was happening there. And that's what, it, whether it's in any, well, I'm sure Russia, China, you name it, any kind of uh, brutal regime who's uh, doing this sort of thing can, uh, can easily uh, gain influence over intellectuals because they fund and support the things that they are interested in. Few exactly. guys will just say, "No, that's ir- that's immoral, and I cannot abide it," and such and so forth. Especially when, well, I'm afraid you're going to have to go to uh, camp, <laughs> you know, for some re-education or for some uh, straightening your mind out, or maybe just worse. You know, that's your choice. You know, do the thing you really want to do and, and accept the, you know, the money. It's like the cartels, you know, they just say, here, here's a here's a, uh, uh, a suitcase full of money. You take that and be our boy or we'll kill your kids. You know, hey, <laughs> the suitcase full of money, that's so looks pretty good. So see how that, I mean, that, that kind of, that's pure gangsterism and it works. I would now like to turn to Admiral Byrd again and go a little uh-huh. bit more deeply down that path, if we can. Uh, he, in 1947, tell us a little bit about what he did, and if you could talk also about some of the things that uh, were have been circulated. For example, the idea, the hollow earth idea, which was uh, popular among many Nazis, uh, had a strange revival in either a fa- fake document or a real document penned by Admiral Byrd. Can you talk about this? Yeah, I think that is probably, I, I saw that document first in German, which I think it was the original of that document of about his uh, foray into the underworld meeting these, uh, you know, these Nordic, types underneath there and all that kind of thing. So I think that uh, that that's probably a, uh, you know, an apocryphal document. And uh, after the war, there were these uh, ex-Nazis or Nazi sympathizers or whatever that uh, that really promoted a lot of these ideas like the the uh, the flying saucers and all of that sort of thing as a kind of uh, a way to tell the world or try to intimate that, uh, hey, you know, we're smarter than the rest of you. We could have done it if we'd just been given more time. You know, all this kind of just you know, psychological uh, therapy or whatever these people were engaging in to say that uh, with this we had this power we had this all this stuff we could have used or should have etc and uh, there was just a whole uh, a world of uh, of making up these stories about the war and uh, these uh, objects and so forth. A lot of it, some of it, you know, based on fact. It starts with a fact or a basic thing, but then the purpose behind it is uh, uh, something else entirely. It's almost like psychotherapy for these, you know, people. Right. So, uh, 
I don't think that that you know, and that he saw did he say? I think it's a German uh, document, uh, the Viennese uh, circle. Uh, you know, this whole thing of the Vril is so big now. You know that the Vril Society and all, uh, yeah. which of course is based on a Bulwer-Lytton book. Uh, it's uh, and all of that. Uh, but now uh, they say, well, no, this is a real thing. Uh, this is like a, a real organization, and the real is an actual power source, a sort of a, a ultimate power source beyond atomic energy and everything else. And uh, so they're modern myths. As I go into this, one of the things that I really try to explain and get into in this book is the idea that... Uh, these uh, myths, and I'll use that word as a, a tr- truly as the word is supposed to be used, as it's an explanation of deep meaning, the, of, of great meaning, to give uh, meaning and direction to a person's thoughts and mind. And uh, uh, these myths uh, are uh, used uh, after, uh, well, not after, during the war, there's propaganda against the Germans. They are a uh, they're an evil race. They do this. They worship the devil. They do this, that, you know, they're all books, or a book especially uh, by uh, Lewis Spence, uh, the, the the occult causes of the present war. And it was just a, a, just a catalog, a little book, but just a catalog of every kind of evil one can imagine described to the German people. It's like a, it's like, you know, the Nazi propaganda, but it's against the Germans, right? And, uh, and so forth, and people see that uh, after the war. Say, see, you know, this is let's go with this. Let's let's build on this, and and so forth. They didn't. It was never reprinted after the war because it was just really too ridiculous. But uh, uh, there were a lot of people creating myths, and some of them were like, "Oh, we've got to like Trevor Ravenscroft." The 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 Germans are oh, they're terrible. Nazis, a demonic, all that sort of thing. But then there was just also these kind of people who said, yeah, I believe all the things you're saying, but I identify with it. I want to promote it. I I, I think that's what I want to be, right? And so they identify with that, and I go through the, the So you have a myth of the Nazis that are people either saying that demonizing or heroizing the same kind of material. And uh, that's where the UFOs and that sort of thing come into to the picture. It's a, uh, a mythology. There's technological basis for it, perhaps, at least in, in theory uh, and such. But uh, going beyond that, it's like this is this Superman technology that they had that... Uh, that we uh, want to somehow mythically recapture for ourselves. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, that that's the way it went. You have people like, you know, Anton LaVey or whatever, you know, creating Nazi rituals about how to get and gain power and that kind of thing uh, and putting it out there. This is what these people were doing. Of course, it was just all, a, you know, imagination and, and not be, it was, just a, a work of uh, magic, magical fiction. Uh, well, of course, so. we make magic when we believe magic. 
then mm-hmm. if we believe in the power, then we create the power. And that is, I think, one of the roots of one of those fun- fundamental realities of the human experience. We have reached the end of our time together. It has been a fascinating discussion. Stephen, I thank you very much for spending time with us. The Occult well, and, Nas- occult and yeah. National Socialism, the Symbolic, Scientific, and Magical Influences of the Third Reich. We also briefly touched on the Occult Roots of Bolshevism. His website, SeekTheMysteries.com. Thank you very much for being with us on Dreamland. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.